It's not what you are that holds you back. It's what you think you are not. I can't do that. I'd be embarrassed. It's impossible. I dare not do that. I couldn't. I don't think. If only... Someday I'll... No, you won't. The limitations you impose on yourself are innumerable. How does it happen? Up to the age of 15, the majority of children hear up to 50,000 no's, don'ts, you can'ts, shouldn't, and better nots. In those growing years, especially the first five, children look upon adults as authority figures, even when they become rebellious and seem to reject authority. Adults are the ones who know, the ones who have the answer. You're stupid. You'll never get anywhere. No one will respect you. Nobody will employ you. You'll always be a failure. The impact on a child is devastating. Authority has spoken. The message goes deep into the self-image and is now part of the child's reality. Repeated often enough, it becomes powerful conditioning, affecting the rest of your life. Just how powerful is seen in an experiment with a class of eight-year-olds. They're told of a new discovery. Children with blue eyes are much more clever than children with brown eyes. Almost immediately, the blue-eyed children leapt ahead of the brown. After a month, teacher announces, I made a mistake. It's the other way round. Brown-eyed children are the clever ones. The result? A complete changeabout. Performance of the blue-eyed children dwindled, the brown-eyed ones surging forward. The implication is obvious, and perhaps a little frightening. Reinforcement was necessary during the experiment. It wasn't just the one statement. The fact that a few carefully chosen words could so dramatically affect performance still remains. From child to adult, you start believing you are free at last to choose your own environment and future. That feeling of freedom, of leaving that restrictive and controlled existence behind, is only because you've entered a new environment, having to make decisions and take responsibilities. Negative conditioning, although unseen, is still within your deep-rooted self-image. Excitement of the new world dulls your ability to see reality. What happens? The conditioning process becomes more subtle. It changes tack and becomes more sophisticated. Without our star player, we can't possibly win the match. Oh, just lucky, I guess. Don't usually do so well. I can't seem to make ends meet. I'm always tired at the end of the day. I knew it wouldn't work. I never seem to get it right. With my luck, I was bound to fail. No one cares for me anymore. You are what you think you are. You tend to become what you think of most of the time. You always move towards your current dominant thought. Experiments show the power of the subconscious mind and hence the self-image. 
A young boy had a severe skin disease on his right arm, medically incurable. Under deep hypnosis, he was simply told, the disease is going away. Nothing more than that. What happened? His arm healed up completely in just a few days. This is the power of the subconscious. Okay, you say, let's run off to the local hypnotist and all our problems will be solved. It would indeed be perfect if this could be done, but unfortunately, it's not the answer. There are not enough hypnotists to go around, and only about one in five can be effectively hypnotized. After treatment, a return to the previous state usually occurs in a few weeks, due to the mountain of negative conditioning not dealt with initially. For this to work, you'd need to employ a hypnotist full-time, and of course, your life would not be your own. The way to change your life is to change your self-image. This is done using words, pictures, and emotions. Remember, you are what you think you are. So you leap out of the chair and shout to the world, I'm a millionaire, I'm happy, I'm successful. You're on the right track, but wait a moment. You've just been through a lifetime of negative conditioning, buried deep in your subconscious. You've just built a solid house brick by brick. Now it's finished, you don't like it. You decide to knock it down and start again. Picking up a sledgehammer, you take a swing. Yes, it's going to take a while to unbuild. So let's tackle the job properly. The best way to improve your self-image is not, as you may think, to demolish the old one. This could take forever. The quickest and most effective way is to simply start creating a new self-image through words, pictures, and emotions. This will automatically replace the old one. What's more, it doesn't take as long as you might think. The procedures to use come later in the program. If properly used, you can change your world. We move on now to consider another major aspect affecting our lives. Self-esteem. So far, we've discussed self-awareness, stress, and self-image. Next, and perhaps most importantly, is self-esteem. One of the most significant influences in your life, and closely linked with self-image, self-esteem is that deep down inside the self-feeling of your own worth. Before going further, turn to page 27 of your workbook and complete your personal assessment chart. Stop the tape here until you finish. Having done the chart, you should now have some idea of the part self-esteem plays in your life. At this point, it should be understood that self-esteem is not the same as ego. A fine line exists between the two. To see the difference between ego and self-esteem, and also what they mean, consider the following. Someone having a high opinion of themselves, constantly expressing their good qualities and accomplishments to anyone who'll listen, indicates an overinflated ego, sometimes unknowingly. This usually indicates low self-esteem. On the other hand, having a high opinion of oneself through true knowledge of self leads to high self-esteem. 
This is reflected in the person who demonstrates their qualities without regard to consequence, neither desiring or needing to display their virtues for want of praise or reward. Between the two extremes are as many levels of self-esteem as people on this earth. Measuring self-esteem in others is a formidable task, but recognizing and understanding your own self-esteem and its value is much easier. All you need is complete honesty with yourself and a sincere desire to learn. An outside source can be beneficial in providing a base of understanding on which to build, if you choose to do so. Those last few words, if you choose to do so, are important. You can study yourself from two viewpoints. Firstly, with intellectual interest. This is of little value except to discover you've been selling yourself short all these years and immediately justify your position with a no need to or doesn't apply to me label. This is ego creeping in because it feels threatened. The second way to study is having a strong desire to improve yourself and your potential. It does not matter where you're coming from. What counts is now this minute and where you go from here. In searching for a more rewarding existence, the largest step forward is realizing the answers you're seeking come from within, not from any external source. The point being, know thyself, or perhaps more accurately, know thy inner self. This program provides keys to understanding and procedures to follow. How far you progress is entirely up to you. It takes a lot of guts to acknowledge you're not the person you'd like to be. We're talking here about a deep inner sense of self. But it takes a very special determination to do something about it. All too often, initial enthusiasm for a project of this kind fades rapidly, and we fall back into our old ways. The game of life, and it is a game, is the only game where all the players can win, but also any number of players can lose. The fascinating thing is, you have the power to choose whether you win or lose. It's a tendency for most people to vastly underrate themselves and their value to their family, community, friends, and associates. This is an indication of low self-esteem. How do we recognize low self-esteem? It's seen in our response to praise from others. That's a nice suit you're wearing. Oh, it's just an old rag. Thought I might give it to the salvos. You were a great help today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was nothing. Don't mention it. That was an excellent piece of work you did. It was just part of my job. You were terrific out on the field. It was a team effort. I didn't do so well. That was an excellent meal, darling. It was nothing special. You've played a great game there. Just lucky, I guess. Don't usually do so well. Why do so many people put themselves down this way? Two reasons. First, they don't like to accept value paid, thinking it places them apart from the crowd by making them special. And secondly, by accepting a standard placed on performance would mean having to live up to that standard or take on the responsibility of being different. 
What's happened to cause this? Maybe some of these are familiar. Don't get involved. Never volunteer. It's not your job. Let someone else do it. I love you. Not right now, dear. Mummy's busy. Don't do that. A thousand things. You'll get hurt. The list is endless. Wouldn't it be better if you accept the gold medal placed around your neck, hunch the shoulders back, take a deep breath and just say, thank you. You smile gently, knowing you've done well, accepting the value paid for something done without regard to any reward. You feel an uplift. You've moved forward. You are one step ahead of the rest. And because of this, others will benefit by your example. And that is how we progress. Carrying this one stage further, when someone does something for you and you praise them in some way, what do you feel when they reply, it was nothing, don't mention it? You've just praised someone for a job well done and they knock you down by reducing your estimate of value to zero. Why, it's almost an insult. By rejecting your offer of praise, they've rejected you. If, on the other hand, they say, thank you with genuine feeling and a smile, then you feel good because they feel good. The good feelings bounce back and forth and you both benefit. As a one-off incident, you may scoff at this as being unimportant. But if you multiply the situation a thousandfold, then the effect becomes very severe indeed. You do not perhaps realize it because you've lived a lifetime of selling yourself short. It's a habit that's grown with you over the years. It's part of you, part of your world, part of your reality. So you accept it as normal. You don't see it any other way. Start accepting that value paid from now on and notice the difference. Now the other side of the coin. Criticism. Its effect on self-esteem. How to take it and how to give it. No matter how it seems, when someone gives you a dose of criticism, they're not criticizing you, they're criticizing your actions. The effect of criticism can be devastating to your self-esteem if taken as personal failing. If it happens often enough, the inner feeling of worth diminishes and feelings of inadequacy set in. Ego rapidly steps in to defend itself and paints a distorted picture to justify your position. As you mature, the effect reduces, but the major damage has been done as a child. Little Johnny, five years old, knocks over a bottle of milk at the breakfast table. Clumsy boy, always knocking things over. You'll never learn. Little Johnny, going through life, learning by the experiences he encounters, has just had a lesson. What did he learn? I am clumsy. I always knock things over. I'll never learn. This goes into his self-image, giving him a poor opinion of himself and leading to low self-esteem. What is his future behavior likely to be? He'll follow his current dominant thought. Clumsy, always knocking things over, never learn. He'll reinforce this knowledge of himself with self-talk. I'm always doing that every time he knocks something over. 
That one episode in Johnny's life would not have a significant effect. But if he encounters this kind of criticism on a regular basis, it will so damage his self-esteem that later in life, he'll become shy, nervous, and withdrawn. Peer group pressure in his maturing years makes his ego react in defense, forcing him to put on a false mask to justify his actions. An increased sense of responsibility in adult years makes it harder to discard criticism. If emotions are high, reason can disappear. Irrational conclusions are drawn to satisfy the ego, which jumps in more readily to defend itself. Usually resentment follows. Change your view of criticism. See that it's aimed at your actions, not you, and it won't affect your self-esteem at all. If criticism is justified, use it as information necessary for target correction. You learn and pursue a different course. What about giving criticism? Most give it in a negative way, aimed at the individual rather than the action. The term constructive criticism is well known, but hardly used. Try doing it this way. Be positive and friendly, knowing most people make mistakes or fall short on performance for a thousand reasons. Ensure criticism is justified. Make sure the action being criticized is within the capability of the person on the receiving end. Know that your world and the other person's may be very different. What to you may appear stupid and irresponsible could be a genuine lack of understanding. Put yourself in their shoes and think before sounding off. Criticize the action, not the person. Aim for a positive outcome rather than knocking the person down. All these things have a strong bearing on self-esteem. Why is it necessary to improve self-esteem? By improving self-esteem, you develop all aspects of your character. Once started, a compounding effect takes place. Qualities acquired or strengthened enable greater and more rewarding things. Start by considering and living the following. Self-esteem is that deep inner feeling of your own self-worth. Use positive self-talk as much as possible. Realize that liking and accepting yourself is not necessarily egotistical. Know that you are a unique individual with a unique talent and purpose. No one on the whole earth could replace you. Each individual is important. Nobody is more important than anyone else. Concentrate on your positive attributes, your good qualities, your successes. Realize that you're a growing individual. Accept yourself totally and unconditionally, knowing you have strengths and weaknesses, good points and bad, positive and negative qualities. One of the best things you can do is give out love and good feelings to every living soul that you meet along life's pathway. Do it without regard to consequence or reward, and you'll get it back tenfold. Up to now, we've considered the major components which make you the unique person you are. Self-awareness, stress, your self-image, and self-esteem. In the process of taking stock, there's one more aspect which affects your perception of life and the very personal world you live in.
Illusion. What is reality to you? What do you see when the magician performs his tricks? What is nature's message in a mirage? Does illusion exist in your daily life? If it does, what is it? How can you recognize it? Does it affect you? Is it harmful or beneficial? So far, we've discussed the things which make up the person you are today, all of which is controlled by your thought process. The desire to express something, whether through the spoken word, a painting, or some written form, is insufficient guarantee the message will be understood. We express ourselves in many ways, through gestures, facial expressions, body movements, inflection of the voice. You see the world through filters made from stress, self-image, self-esteem. These filters get clogged up with faulty information, giving you a distorted view of reality. You receive all knowledge through a process of communication. To demonstrate how easily the communication process can give you the wrong picture, try the exercise on page 34 of the workbook. Stop the tape until you finish. Still looking at the last picture on page 41, consider the following. What are you actually seeing in the last picture? W-O-R-D. Word. Yes, but is it really there? If you removed all the X's from the picture, what would be left? Would the word still be there? Perhaps it would. But we wouldn't be able to see it just a blank sheet of paper. So what do you really see? Write an illusion. You think you see word, but in actual fact there are only a series of X's. The information is in the X's, but we do not see it. The point being made here is, what you think is real need not necessarily be so. Turn to page 42. Look at any object, car, table, anything. If you take that object, remove all the spaces between and within each atom, what's left wouldn't even fill a matchbox. So what are you really seeing when you look at the world? Let's take the table as an example. A table is a table, but what is it made of? Wood. Where does the wood come from? Yes, a tree. But does it? The wood is in the tree. The wood is the tree. But the tree was not always there, was it? The tree grew from a seed. So where did the wood come from? All that wood in the table could not possibly fit in the seed, could it? Was the wood in the ground where the tree grew? Well, sort of. The atoms of nutrients in the ground were absorbed by the seedling and transformed into the wood that became the tree through a process known as photosynthesis. So what, you say? Now, at present, the atom is still a theory. Some will argue the atom is fact. They will prove its existence by pointing to a mountain of experiments and formulas that prove it. 
but no one has ever seen an atom. Could it be that all they've seen is a series of X's surrounding what they think is an atom? Just as you saw the word. If you grasp the implication here, the very world you're standing on suddenly becomes threatened. The concept of reality, the furniture, the car, the cities, the nations, the very earth itself, and the people, even you and I. But, you say, I can see the table. I can feel the table. I can hear the noise it makes when I tap it. But do you really see, feel, and hear it? You think you see it. You think you feel it. You think you hear it. A vivid dream is as real to you as the world you live in, at least whilst you're having the dream. What do dreams consist of? Thoughts. It's just the mind. It's imagination. Not real at all, you say. But those thoughts and pictures were very real to you during the dream. Look at the bridge on page 43. Where did it come from? The designer vividly saw the bridge long before it was constructed. He thought of every piece, every nut and bolt, every dimension. It was as real in his mind as if it actually existed. To hear him describe every detail, you would have believed it was already spanning a river somewhere. His thoughts became the bridge. And the bridge is made of atoms. All the bridges, all the rivers, all the trees, all the buildings, all the people. Atoms. But we do think. It is said, I think, therefore I am. Those words are a step, an attempt at giving reason to one's existence. It may be seen as a truth, but understanding the concept and true nature of the real I is the goal. If the table's existence is now suspect, we still think it's there. We also think we have an emotion such as happiness. I am happy, or I think I am happy. What you think you are at any moment is what you are. So if thoughts are things, are not the table and the happiness made from the same substance? Thought. I think I see the table. I think I'm happy. Or, my thought is table. My thought is happiness. Let's study that last statement further. Where is the happiness? It's not outside you. It's inside or part of you, isn't it? If a surgeon operated on you, would he find it? No, of course not. And yet the happiness is there. So it's reasonable to say, not only my thought is happiness, but also I am the happiness. So why not my thought is table and I am the table. Can you see that both statements are true? It's only a lifetime of conditioning that separates you from the table, putting it in your outer world and the happiness in your inner world. Both are thoughts, and both are made from the same substance. Let's take a different look at the atom. Page 44. 
Just as the word did not really exist, the atom too does not exist. The X's that gave us the word are the same as the shaded area in this picture. Take away the shaded area and the atom disappears. What if the X's and shaded area are thought energy or substance? Wow, the whole universe consists of pure thought and nothing more. Hang on to your seat. Who's in control of your thoughts? Yes, you are. So who controls your world? Yes, my friend, you do, completely. Interesting, isn't it? This ends part one and taking stock.